Hi, I'm Allie Jackson Jolly. I'm here with Dr. Marcus Collins, who is a clinical associate professor of marketing, as well as the author of his book for the culture, the power behind what we buy, what we do, and who we want to be. Welcome. Thanks for having me here. Yeah, no, I'm excited about this one um, because I wanted to have you here to talk about um, the cost of college mm -hmm. um, and how students and college consumers should be thinking about making good investments, smart money, yeah, right? Yeah, I like that, college consumers, because we are consuming college as a branded product. Something that's making been making me think about college consumers thinking about themselves more as consumers who get to decide what they're buying and how that's serving them well was a re recent bit of reporting that was done by one of our journalists here who found out that um, half of college seniors have said that they will not apply and go to colleges that cost more than $40,000. That says to me that the consumer has spoken yeah. and that they want a good return on their investment. Yeah, yeah, they're thinking about the net present value of their investment, right? So I invest today what does it mean on the back end? I guess the calculus they're doing is that if I invest X amount of money over these four years, what's the likelihood of me getting the return on that? That's exactly right. That's that's what the piece said. Yeah. And um, interestingly, though, you said to me that one thing you think college kids should think about when they do that calculus, to borrow your word, is um, something called cultural capital. Yeah. Can you explain to me what cultural capital is and why you think college students should be thinking about this yeah. more? So cultural capital is an idea that came from a sociologist named Pierre Bourdieu. And the idea of cultural capital is this is the, the, the currency in which we evaluate the things that are around us as a way of signifying who we are. And he talks about cultural capital in three different ways, three different forms of cultural capital. The first form of cultural capital is uh, embodied cultural capital which speaks to the skills that we have, i.e. Uh, if you can sing, if you can uh, play an instrument, or if you read the classics in literature, right, the Odyssey, Homer the Odyssey, um, if you know a foreign language, you know, if you, if you are equestrian. The idea is that knowing these skills or having these, these skills signal something about yourself. For instance, if you said, Ali, Marcus, what did you do growing up? And I said, well, I rode horses when I was growing up. You probably think, oh, Marcus comes from a lot of means mm. because that's a signal of wealth. And the idea is that these embodied cultural capital, these skills that we have become ways of signaling kind of who we are in the world, like the space that we that we occupy, and we demarcate ourselves from the rest of the world. And the notion is that I meet other people who have these skills and therefore it opens up economic opportunity for me. Right? It's like rich people hang out with rich people. These signals become ways of signaling who we are on the social economic status. Therefore, cultural capital provides access to economic capital. So that's the first uh, form of, of social ca of cultural capital. The second form of cultural capital he refers to as objectified cultural capital, which is far more intuitive. The idea is that the things that we wear, the objects, the artifacts that we consume, are ways by which we uh, achieve a an identity project, kind of peacocking to the world who we are. So that one reminds me of. Um the bumper stickers we put on our cars. We go to what we think of as 
an elite college or a college that we're proud of. We put the bumper sticker on our car. We wear our baseball caps. We buy mom and dad sweatshirts that say proud parent of a William & Mary grad because that was my alma mater. (laughs) That's right. So the idea is that our consumption in these tangible things become ways by signifying or signaling where we are in the social economic status. The car we drive, the clothes that we wear, these things signal something about us. And the notion is that if you drive a fancy car, you see someone else driving a fancy car, you think, oh, we are one and the same. We are of the same tribe, as one may say. And therefore, we're more inclined to open up opportunities to them that lead to economic uh, gains, right? Economic uh, uh, capital, financial uh, capital. So you got this embodied cultural capital, which is about skill. You have objectified cultural capital, which is about the objects that we consume. And then there's a thing that you were signaling to. The third form of cultural capital, according to Pierre Perdue, is institutional cultural capital. And this is the companies we work for. This speaks to uh, the organizations that we were part of. I remember growing up, uh, if you were in Jack and Jill, it was like, oh, excuse me, Jack and Jill, right? Say something about who who you are and the schools that we go to, right? These schools become brands that signal who we are, where we sit in the socioeconomic status, which gives us access to more uh, financial opportunities, just like you would tell another friend or someone who's just like you about a job or or an investment opportunity. These things come from where we find people like ourselves based on how we signal, whether it's through embodied, objectified, or institutional. And the notion here is that college, universities become both a, uh, a form of institutionalized cultural capital and uh, objectify cultural capital based on me wearing gear. You've probably seen studies before people wear Harvard shirts who didn't even go to Harvard as a way of signaling something about themselves that are implications of our embodied cultural capital. You must be smart if you went to this school and it's signified by what you wear. So um, if you had a, um, if you could look into the future, um, based on those stats that I just told you, which is that fewer people are wanting to pay big dollars, or really what the study found was that students are afraid of big debt, right? So do you think um, that that one of those pieces of cultural capital will become less important and others will become more important? Or how do you think um, the framing of that will, will play out over the next few years? Well, I think that if the calculus is that paying for this institutional experience is not worth it, then we're looking at what the institutional cultural capital provides. But what each one of these forms of cultural capital are leading to is financial gain. And the proxy between the skill, the object, the institution is the people. And it's really sort of what you end up paying for, or at least that's kind of what we're getting access to. That not just the professors, but it's the people, the network that I'm going to to uh, to be a part of, that I'm able to tap into, that allow for these doors that normally aren't open to me. Right? It's because I go to this school that I can call a Michigan alum, they'll answer the phone and perhaps give me a job or introduce me to someone else that may invest in my idea. That's the benefit of institutional cultural capital. That is, it opens up to financial gain. 
you know, if I'm rocking some uh, really cool sneakers, someone goes, oh, you must be into sneakers. So I can tell the colorway and the vintage, whatever, fill in the blank. They go, you should hang out with us because we're doing these things. They open up doors to opportunities. The same thing goes that if I speak a foreign language, someone goes, oh, you have a really good pronunciation of your French. You should meet so-and-so and they create other opportunities. That's what the capital is. The capital is driven by social capital which then turns into economic capital. So the calculus, I think, is far more complicated, far more complex than, am I gonna get this job tomorrow when I graduate, but rather, am I gonna meet people that are gonna open up the world to me that normally would not be available to me? That's really hard to quantify. Okay, so let's pretend you're my financial advisor, okay. <laughs> and I am a college senior getting ready for to go to college. Um, how, knowing what you just spoke to me about, cultural capital as a return on investment, yeah. and, and the network, um, potential of networking, um, how, do I, how do I look to make sure a college is doing that? What are the, what are the signals that, that I may get a good return on my investment around cultural capital and networking? Well, so I think there are a few indicators, indices that we can think about. Uh, one, we can look at the people who occupy the places where we want to work, where we want to be in the world. What schools do they come from? Because if the notion is that institutionalized cultural capital is going to be access to people who are of this network, well, where's the network? Right? Are they doing the things that I, that I want to do? Which is why you see people go, and go to certain schools to be in certain uh, sectors, right? People go entrepreneurship. For an MBA, for instance, will go to Stanford. People who want to go in media and entertainment, they may go to Stern. People who may want to go into finance, maybe they go to a booth. I don't know, right? If you want to just be dope, you go to University of Michigan. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm serious, though. Anyway, <laughs> so the, the notion is that we go to the places where people like people who we want to be have been in hopes that I'm now being plugged into the network. How do you quantify that? It's not really sure. But I think what I would ask, or what I would ask the student if I were the financial advisor is, what do you want to get out of this thing that we call life? Not just what do you want after the four years, but what do you want the four years after the four years after the four years? So I think about my career, I started as an engineer. And I realized pretty early on that I didn't want to be an engineer. My parents didn't care, so I could see that engineering degree and after engineering, I went into the music business. And I, financially, it was not a good return. I ended up going to business school later to get my MBA, which was a very hefty investment that my parents weren't gonna foot the bill on. It was all on me. And when I came out of the MBA program in 2008, in the middle of a recession, mind you, I came out with no job, no leads, and 116 grand in debt. And you go, what? Like that calculus is terrible. Like every person who think about going to MBA program are fretting right now. Um, but you fast forward 10 years after that, I'm in a completely different place. Not just because of me dispositionally, it's because of the networks I've been able to tap into, the relationships I've been able to cultivate because of this institutionalized cultural capital that we call universities. Right? And because of the embodied cultural capital, the universities help me excavate these skills. They help me excavate. Right? I don't dress to the nines. So I don't know if objectified is there, but certainly embodied and institutional. And over the long run, as we look at the time horizon in which we benefit from school, it changes the calculus. If it's just four years, then I don't know if that's the the right way or the right frame to think about college. I think we should think about it in a far greater time horizon 
um, and think about what we want to get out of it in the long run. Yeah, well, final question. So if I am a university president, um, again, thinking about how much smarter college consumers are about their money that they're investing and how much more thoughtful they're being to make sure they get that return on investment, um, what could I be doing to um, specifically to leverage um, how I can pay them back in cultural capital yeah. or in networking? So I think we have to think about the value propositions differently. Um, if this were toothpaste, we'd be talking about more fluoride, right? Or, or your teeth are whiter, we remove stains. And I think that the savviness of today's consumers, these are high school students that are going to college, like they realize that there's a lot of it is parity in their minds. So the value proposition had to be much greater, had to be much more meaningful to what I want to get accomplished, which means then a university president have to have a better understanding of how people are seeing the world. They have to have a better understanding of what their ambitions are. They're not going to school for some of the traditional means we think about going to school. Their calculus is just far different. So we need to know what the variables are and where our school, our branded product offering, where we are best uh, situated to have a better product market fit. And once we look at the, the, the calculus, we go, oh, we do this better than everybody. Let's focus here. And you come here to get these things. Mm. And here are all the, the services, all the opportunities and ways by which we'll help you achieve that. That becomes the promise of school. It takes it away from this sort of you know, uh, uh, binary uh, uh, rubric of, do I, if I go to school here, will I get this job and make this much money? If not, there's not the right place for me. And it goes, well, let's actually expand the aperture a little bit. Let's widen it out a little bit and say, what do we want to really get out of this? And how can we help you do that very thing. Yeah, well, great. Unfortunately, we're out of time, um, but I hope that we do this again soon. Um, and thanks so much for coming and making us all a little bit smarter about our money. Glad to do it.